Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by John James OBE. John is the CEO of the national charity The Sickle Cell Society. John, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. My pleasure. It's a real pleasure having you on the air with us as well, John. Now, the purpose of this discussion, first and foremost, is to establish your take on leadership. So if we explore that word leader to begin with, I'm interested to understand what that word means to you and how it resonates on the whole. Well, leadership means to me the ability to um, motivate and take a group of people with you uh, towards a common purpose or a common goal. Uh, some people call it vision. But um, you want to be able to inspire people um, uh, towards a journey uh, that uh, they can all buy into uh, and uh, work towards achieving. And in that process, uh, not everybody might agree with aspects of the journey, but uh, in that process of leadership, that there is conversations, discussions that mould and shape that um, common purpose and vision uh, that people can belong to uh, to achieve. And if we think about your sort of personal leadership style, if you will, how would you define that? Well, my my my, my style is uh, is is mixed, but I would define it as one. Um, that uh, listens uh, to uh, uh, people and 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 and, and acts and, I, and and by that I mean I uh, want to take people with me. I'm concerned about um, their ability to uh, grasp the issues, help them to support. So I'm supportive. I'm enabling. Uh, those are characteristics of my style. But that support and enablement is towards that common purpose that I described earlier. I think there's a real merit in that approach in the sense that, of course, you're there to guide where needed, but there is that sort of encouragement for people to take on their own form of leadership in a way because they're being independent, they're trying things for themselves, and that's ultimately a learning experience. And that's incredibly important on our journey as not just developing as people and employees, but also as leaders, isn't it? That freedom to go out and try things and maybe make one or two mistakes and embrace those as learning curves as well. I agree with that because it's, you know, important to make the point that uh, the leadership operates at all levels in an organization, no matter where you are uh, in the organization. And that that enablement that I uh, described and motivation and inspiration is to allow leadership to happen at different levels. Uh, So you create the space, the headroom, uh, and the confidence that people feel that uh, they can move forward and lead in their respective areas. And even though the ongoing COVID-19 situation, of course, has been an incredibly difficult and incredibly tragic time for businesses, governments, and communities across the world, Um, It has been one of the most significant learning curves, I think it's fair to say, for organisations and businesses. From a leadership perspective, is there anything that you have learned over the last few months as you've adapted to the new reality under COVID-19? Well, I I, I have learned 
a lot in this period, uh, and I think we've all learned a lot, whether uh, we are individuals, families, organisation, uh, and I think the countries uh, is uh, learning uh, as well. But from an organisational perspective and a leadership uh, perspective, um, and, and just remember what you said, Scott, about leadership um, and how it happens at uh, uh, different uh, levels, then you have to trust in people to do the best that they can. Um, and from an organizational perspective, you know, I've learned that uh, a charity of our size and with limited resources has been able to adjust in a um, nimble way to continue to support uh, the many people across um, uh, the UK who uh, live with sickle cell. And people um, during this time have really brought out the best in themselves in a period of adversity, haven't they? We've seen some incredible stories from the front line and elsewhere of people going above and beyond to keep vital services going, keep the communication and, and channels open as well. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And, and what that does is um, give um, confidence um, in ourselves as individuals, in ourselves as leaders, that um, we are working to that common purpose I uh, described earlier on. So that certainly is um, a, a, a lesson. Um, but I think there are also um, some important lessons uh, that have emerged from COVID-19, uh, which um, uh, need to be spoken more about. So um, the scale of the health inequalities in the UK has been brought out very visibly by COVID-19. Mm. Now, as a charity working in the field of sickle cell, we have been making this point for many years about uh, the uh, scale of health inequalities and particularly in relation to sickle cell. So it really, Scott, should not take a pandemic uh, for um, uh, uh, this to be, oh, well, this is something that we need to address. We should have been addressing it um, uh, uh, much earlier uh, because some of us uh, in the field of sickle cell will have known these health inequalities uh, have uh, existed. So that's one. Number two, um, you know, we, we've clapped for the NHS and so we should uh, because the COVID-19 experience has also um, shown us the value of um, key workers, um, uh, whether they are, you know, collecting the dustbins or uh, working on uh, public transport or working in the NHS. There's a value for our public workers in their contribution to keeping uh, communities and um, the country going. So these are all important lessons which we should not lose if um, and when uh, there is a vaccine and things go back to whatever the new normal might be, that we mustn't forget the learning and the experience from uh, COVID-19. So we address those things going forward. Absolutely. Now certainly is the uh, the time for action on that front. And it is encouraging as well to see more recognition for those key workers in particular, because when we think of leadership in general, I think we're tempted to associate it immediately with the public eye, with politics and celebrity and sports. And those everyday leaders who can often be some of the most influential people in our lives, people who are mentors, teachers, 
key frontline workers, for example, friends, family, colleagues, recognition for their importance and their achievements can often fall by the wayside as a result of that mentality, can't it? Well, it, it can, and, 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 and that is the uh, critical skill of leadership. So let me illustrate that with an example. So if you take uh, the Black Lives Movement uh, and the campaign uh, that has uh, uh, helped to highlight the uh, health inequalities, it's also helped to uh, highlight the injustices that um, occur. Now, um, we have big corporations who, you know, are putting their hands up and um, saying, yes, we need to do these things. Now, leadership means it's not just putting your hands up and saying we're going to do these things. It's a question of whether their non-executive boards will change, whether there will be change in policy within the organization. So leadership isn't just about um, speaking up um, at the moment, but actually just keeping things uh, uh, ticking over. So it's about real change and achieving that change over a period of time. And we will see um, in the coming months whether those uh, leaders and corporations who um, uh, acknowledge what the Black Lives Matter campaign is doing are actually making that leadership change in their own corporations uh, um, and within their own leadership teams. Certainly going to be interesting times on that front to see if the action required is going to be taken. Um, Another thing that the COVID-19 pandemic has really thrust back into the limelight, as it were, is the importance of mental health and well-being, particularly since we're all, of course, socially distanced at this time. Um, How important do you think that mental health is in leadership, both in terms of looking after one's own mental health and that of their colleagues? Vital, uh, and it always has been, because one of the Um, important characteristics of uh, good leaders, not the only one, but uh, is emotional intelligence. And um, uh, that also means that it's not something that uh, where, you know, you you have to work, um, you know, seven till nine o'clock at night. Well, you know, what COVID is is, um, uh, showing us is that we have to be supporting our people to work in flexible ways that enables um, that balance of uh, family, individual um, uh, well-being to uh, flourish um, and grow. Uh, Because we know that the um, uh, lockdown uh, will take a terrible toll on um, uh, some individuals' mental health. And, um, you know, I can speak confidently about that because uh, sickle cell, uh, the, the condition uh, uh, we deal with as a charity, um, uh, has uh, many uh, psychosocial issues for uh, individuals. And that is simply going to be exacerbated with um, uh, lockdown where those individuals have not had uh, the support, the care, the love um, uh, from family uh, and uh, friends. So I think we are, as a country, um, uh, you know, beginning to uh, uh, build up some um, issues around mental health that uh, uh, will play out over the coming uh, months and years. But good leaders um, uh, need to make time and listen 
but put processes in place as we're learning with flexible ways of uh, working to um, enable that well-being uh, for individuals uh, uh, and, and their families. And I think that's uh, critically important um, uh, if you're a really good leader and you want your organisation to um, be um, welcoming of uh, addressing people's mental uh, health needs uh, in the workplace. And as we've said on a couple of occasions already during this discussion, we are entering very uncertain but very fascinating times. So before we wrap things up on the uh, the programme, I'm interested to think what you um, envision um, for yourself, John, and for the Sickle Cell Society over the course of the next 12 to 18 months, perhaps, and what you really hope to achieve during that period. Well, I have to, first of all, give um, uh, credit to... Um, our staff here at the Sickle Cell Society, um, our trustees, our volunteers and our supporters because uh, what we have been able to do during uh, COVID is to fill that gap that isn't there from uh, government about giving specific advice uh, to uh, uh, this uh, Sickle Cell community here in uh, the UK. And uh, we want to continue that as we move forward. Um, But the important thing that uh, uh, I would like to see for the charity, uh, for the sickle cell community and the uh, black and minority ethnic community is that some of the protestations about, yes, we need to do better uh, and learn from the uh, COVID experience with this group is that we do begin to address the inequalities that we have been talking about, you know, for the last 20 years. So um, it, it's it's a question of uh, will there be real leadership to tackle uh, those problems which we have known about rather than um, uh, uh, push them to one side. Mm. It's certainly going to be interesting to see how the uh, the next uh, few months uh, pan out for sure. And, you know, John, given how informative it's been actually having you on the uh, the programme to discuss some of these issues uh, today, I think it would be fantastic to perhaps have you back on to catch up um, later on down the line just to assess exactly what has changed in the time between, because it's all well and good speculating on what may happen. But it's another entirely looking back and reflecting at a later date. So it would be my pleasure, certainly, to welcome you back onto the air with us. And I'd be delighted to do that, Scott. And thank you very much for your time this uh, morning. It's been a real pleasure having you join us um, on the air for today's programme, John. It's a shame we don't have more time. Otherwise, we could discuss it long into the afternoon, I'm sure. Um, But do, um, of course, take care and stay safe in the meantime until we do speak again. Because as we both well know, there are a great deal of variables still. And there's plenty of time for things to change with the COVID-19 situation as well. Indeed, indeed. Long way to go. Thanks very much, Scott. That was John James OBE speaking, CEO of the Sickle Cell Society. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Lord Blunkett himself rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation during his career, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair 
Affairs Cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August of 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak Uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what their 
delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think Out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, 
and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. 
So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've 
put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. 
and those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual, unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while... Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government, and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced 
shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned 
from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blanket. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.